Okay, we are picking up, obviously, in Romans chapter 1, or chapter 8, verse 1. Um, we're going to be looking at chapter 8 a lot, so I hope everybody's open to it. We left off last week looking at this conflict within the Apostle Paul that is indeed a conflict that takes place within all of us. And this struggle, we'll call it, is rooted in this. It's rooted in the fact that sin is not a past or a prior event in our lives. It is a present reality, a reality that we must contend with on a daily basis. I think we would all agree on that. Now, we as Christians know God's general will because it's in his word, and we know his desire for us in serving him, which is holiness, but even though we can, we can try to carry out his will in our lives, we cannot completely overcome sinning against him while we are acting in this body or this fleshly tent, if you will. We try. Most of us strenuously try, but we often fail. And that failure causes us to cry out with the Apostle Paul, we saw this last week, and say, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Romans 7, 24. And we also looked at the answer at the end of last week's sermon to that question that Paul asks, which is, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then Paul says, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Remember that? That was chapter 7, verses 24 and 25. So in other words, God has rescued us through Christ, though while in this fleshly tent we sin daily, God continues to forgive and restore us because he loves us and he has shown us his love by sending his son to die for us. How am I doing so far? Okay. And as such, sin cannot deliver the fatal blow that will eternally separate us from the love of God that we infinitely have through our Lord Jesus Christ. For sin, although present in us, cannot condemn us if we're Christians. This is why Romans chapter 8 begins like this. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And in the very last verses, that was verse 1, the very last verses of Romans 8, verses 37 through 39, we see this victorious affirmation by the Apostle Paul. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, in a sentence, the battle is not over, but the victory has already been declared. As we study chapter 8 of Romans, we will plainly see that all of this is possible, as I said last week, through the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that sanctifies us and keeps us in the faith. It's important that we see that. You've heard me say many times, he is the author and finisher of our faith. That's Hebrews 12.2, where the context, by the way, it's important to point out, is salvation, which is compared to, the salvation is compared to a race that we must run and endure in so that we can finish that race. And you've also heard me say many times, He that began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in or at the day of Jesus Christ, meaning his second coming, and that's Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. The context there in Philippians is also salvation. So we know that this salvation race is a race that we must endure in to the end. And we know that Christ started it and finished it, and he does it through the Holy Spirit. And so with that said, please always remember that it is Christ by way of the Holy Spirit that keeps us in this race and causes us to persevere to the end. It's not something that we do by ourselves. He sets us apart for a gradual, progressive holiness as we walk with God daily Growing, at least we should be, growing in obedience to the Lord. And that's the definition of sanctification that I just said. That's what the Holy Spirit does in the life of a believer whose heart has been regenerated and whose life has already been justified with or by the God-given gift of faith. That's the Christian life, that order, regeneration, justification, sanctification, glorification. You see, along those same lines in Romans 8, there is no authoritative law commands, law hyphen commands. Why? Because we are being led in Romans 8 by Paul, we're being led by the Spirit and not driven by the taskmaster of the law that Paul talked about so much in Romans 7. Even though we know that God's law, very important, declares that all people are guilty of sin and deserve to die, that's Romans chapters 1 through 7, the Apostle Paul here in chapter 8 lays out a very beautiful tapestry of how God now 
reverses that declaration for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And in so doing, he declares us not guilty. In reality, we're as guilty as O.J. Simpson, but God declares us not guilty. <laughs> so I'm going to quote Martin Luther here, since this is his wheelhouse. And Luther says this, quote, We fell under God's wrath and displeasure and were doomed to eternal damnation just as we had merited and deserved. There was no counsel, help, or comfort until this only and eternal Son of God, in his immeasurable goodness, had compassion upon our misery and wretchedness. He came from heaven to help us, John 1, 9. So those tyrants and jailers, Luther said, are all expelled now. In their place has come Jesus Christ, Lord of life, righteousness, and every blessing and salvation. He has delivered us poor, lost people from hell's jaws. He has won us. He has made us free and has brought us again into the Father's favor and grace, end quote. So no condemnation, church. That's my whole point. No separation from God for those that are in Christ. Now, more specifically, how do we get here? Well, let's look at verse 2 of Romans 8. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Remember, the law condemns to death. Remember chapter 7, verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear the fruit of death. Remember that? You are free from that binding, obligatory, unalterable law which controlled you and had authority over you. Then there's your flesh. Let's talk about that for a minute. Your old self, the old man, self-absorbed, self-interested, hostile to God at every turn. And as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, hater, well, he says hostile to God, haters of God. But look at Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Verse 4, Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Holy Spirit. Here's what I pray that you see this morning. I pray that you see that at the cross, God broke the power of sin and pronounced a sentence upon it. As Christians, we still retain the flesh 
or our old self, old man. But this is the most important part. It's alien to our new self, to our new being, which is governed by the Holy Spirit here in chapter 8 of Romans. So under the direction of the Holy Spirit, we as Christians can walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh because Christ has fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law in us. I'm going to say that one more time. Christ has fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law in us. Look at Romans 8, 3 and 4 again, okay? One more time. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In other words, the law can show us our sin, as we saw in Romans 3, verse 20, and as we saw in Romans 7, verse 7, but it neither, I'm sorry, but it can neither enable us to stop committing those sins nor can it atone for those sins because in spite of all the attempts to keep the law, we are fallen, sinful men and women. But those, those things are still requirements of the law that have to be met. And Christ met them for us is my whole point. We don't have to meet them. They're actually met in us through Christ. Do you want to get technical? Without ceasing to be God, Christ became like us in all areas except our sin, Hebrews 4.15 and Hebrews 7.26. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So Christ became like us in every area and then he bore our guilt as a sacrifice to God. Remember, remember Romans chapter 3, verses 24 through 26. Paul says we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show, Paul says, God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So the law cannot atone, but Christ can atone. The law cannot save, but Christ can save. We cannot stop sinning, but Christ has already forgiven us of all of our sins, past, present, future. And I'll repeat again, because it's important. 
Christ also bore that guilt. Let's not forget that one for those of us who like to beat ourselves up and feel guilty all the time. And the result of Christ's atoning work is a people, you and, you and me, who are not under the direction and quickening, I'm sorry, who are under the direction and quickening of the Holy Spirit, forgive me. And under that Holy Spirit, we begin to keep, this is important, we begin to keep the moral law from the heart since the law is still the divine definition of holiness. We should want to obey it. We should want to live in obedience to the moral law to obtain uh, not salvation, not favor, not merit, but just out of love, gratitude for Christ and what he did for us. You want to please a parent. Kids want to please their parents most of the time, especially little kids. And they want to please that parent because they know what that parent has done for them in this life. And it should be the same with us. We know what Christ did for us on that cross, and we should want to live an obedient life in gratitude. With that said, we know that the Christian life is an experience of constant challenge, however. You're not going to deny that. The challenge to put to death what? The evil deeds of the body through the life of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. If you don't believe me, look at verse 13, please. In chapter 8. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live according to the Spirit, you will put to death the deeds of the body and you will live. Verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we are willing to suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So because of the Holy Spirit being in you, you not only, or you should not only, enjoy this new life, but also this new relationship with God as an adopted child of his, as an heir through Christ, whose sufferings and glory you share. That's verses 14 through 17. And I'm sorry, but I can't tell you that you will not suffer as a Christian. Paul tells us right there that we will, and in numerous other places, obviously. But what I can tell you is that the glory you were destined to share with Christ far outweighs and exceeds the sufferings of this present life. 
We need to think about that. As a matter of fact, Paul says in verse 17 that we just read that it's the suffering with Christ that allows us to obtain glorification with him. We need to train our minds to think about the fact that this created world that we live in right now is linked with the future world that belongs to us as believers. There's a connection between the here and the now, or like I said last week, the already but not yet. We need to understand that this world shares in the penalty of corruption brought about by sin, but it also shares in the benefits of redemption and the future glory that comprises the ultimate liberation of God's people. That's you. The two are connected. Paul says it right here, beginning in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's what he's saying. For the creation waits, he says in verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of, of the children of God. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, Paul says. This is our hope. For what, uh, for who hopes for what he sees? We hope for what we do not see, for what we have not seen yet. And it is that that Paul says we wait patiently for. We groan for our full inheritance that includes the resurrection body. Have you ever sat down and contemplated that? It includes the privileges and the enjoyment of the fullness that awaits us as children of Almighty God. And the Holy Spirit within us, folks, is the guarantee that this new creation will be completed. It'll come to fruition. As a matter of fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, if you want to write it down, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, that the Holy Spirit is God's seal on our heart's guarantee. And in Ephesians chapter 1, Verses 13 and 14, Paul says, We are not only sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, but He, the Holy Spirit, is our down payment for our inheritance until we acquire possession of it 
to the praise of his glory. One day we will possess our inheritance. It's our hope. This is our hope. This is something we should be excited about. It is our sure expectation, our yet-to-be-seen future goodness arising from our faith in God's divine testimony as expressed in his eternal word. In verse 26, likewise, Paul says, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So we see here that the Holy Spirit He's not just our seal or our promise, but he's also our intercessor. Paul says that he makes intercession for us with groanings too deep for words, and he does so, here's the trick, according to the Father's will. How does he do that? I don't know, but that's what it says. He is an advocate who speaks for us. He knows what is in our best interest. He knows better than we do. You know as well as I do that our frailty in this present life limits us and hinders our prayer life. I mean, how many times have you been in deep prayer and then in a millisecond before you even realize it, your mind's wandering off, worrying about what's in the slow cooker. And we, we don't do a very good job. Concentrate. I don't, at least. Um, so the Holy Spirit comes and assists us. Thank God. He knows that our mental horizons are severely limited compared to what God knows about us and wills for us. The Father and the Spirit are in tune with, with what's good for us. And let's not forget, it's not just the Holy Spirit that intercedes for us, but Christ intercedes for us. In Hebrews 7.25, the author says that Jesus always lives to make intercession for those that draw near to God through him. And in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, John says Jesus is our advocate with the Father when we sin. That's pretty awesome. He must be advocating for me a lot. And that, this is right, and this is true, and this is good. This is the word of God. But as a point of difference, the Holy Spirit intercedes within us when we are without words to express our longings and desires. The Holy Spirit groans within us as our intercessor to the Father. That's a special intercession. It's a different intercession from what Christ, 
how Christ intercedes. And Paul tells us in verse 27 that what the Holy Spirit takes to the Father on our behalf, as I said before, is in line with the Father's will. And to that, I think there's a certain mystery there. So, listen, do you see why it's so important to defend the doctrine of the Trinity? And do you see why cults, the first thing they do is attack the Trinity? Because the, the, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are so pronounced in Scripture as distinctive and having, having different roles throughout all of Scripture that the Trinity is completely undeniable. I mean, how oneness Pentecostals can read the Bible and not see the Trinity, is, it's just beyond me. I don't get it. I mean, I, I know why, technically, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and oneness Pentecostals don't see the Trinity. It's because they're blinded by the devil while they're reading because it's in there. And if they were reading with eyes wide open and blinders taken off, they would see it everywhere. So we're going to stop here next week. Okay, get ready, folks. We're going to, we're going to delve into um, two or three weeks talking very, very deeply about predestination and election. I don't know if you remember when I was going through Romans 1 and 2, I touched on a couple of those things and I said, when we get to later chapters, I'll elaborate on them in greater detail. Well, here we are. Um, if you have uh, Christian friends who are Arminians or Christian friends that don't see or maybe don't like or understand even election, predestination, God's foreknowledge, the next, next few sermons are the ones to invite them to. So I'm not only going to get into it from um, a context perspective in Romans, but I'm also going to tackle it from the perspective of a subject, topical, because it's that important, especially as Reformed Baptists which is what we're calling ourselves on paper, at least. We need to be able to understand it and also defend it. So we're going to spend quite a bit of time on, time on it. Let's pray.